Subscribe to the Hit That Line Podcast Network, brought to you by Breeden RV Center. Breeden RV Center, family-owned and operated, a no-pressure, laid-back atmosphere, and always home of the free maintenance for life. Good morning. Welcome to Coffee with Council. I'm Brad Hull. I'm here with Caitlin Brainerd and Kevin Hickey. We're attorneys with Hickey and Hull Law Partners. Hey. So, I promise everyone who's listening who listens to us for not sports type stuff and wants to hear what we have to say about legal matters, we will get to some legal topics. But I have some Razorback takes I've been sitting on, and I'm going to start with those. Um, I want to start with this offensive coordinator stuff. I have had a tumultuous relationship with Kendall Bryles, like many Hog fans, where I can't decide if he's great or he's the most frustrating person that we've ever had calling plays because he's just so prone to make the worst call at the worst possible time while making 95% of the best calls. And turned out he had one last terrible trick play in him to aggravate every Razorback fan. And he did that, and um, I was pretty unhappy about that. But then we swoop in with this Enos hire, and I've got to say I'm I'm pretty excited about it. I actually really liked him when he was here before, and so I went back and kind of looked at the numbers to see what it looked like, and it looks pretty good. He His offense, the one year that they had him and Pittman together – was really, really good. One of the best ones we've ever had. They averaged 34 points a game in SEC play, um, which is a lot for Arkansas. And the next two years were a little worse, 27 and 26 points per game. But you compare that with the years that we had Kendall, and he was averaging 28 and 26. And, And again, I was just looking at conference play. Now, the real point of reference to see good offense versus bad offense is to go look at those horrible Chad Morris years when we averaged 17 points a game. So I I recall him being a good play caller. I always liked his offenses. And when I look back, the numbers really stacked up. And then I saw something on Twitter that I have not fact-checked, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. Apparently in 2015... Uh, according to the ESPN efficiency rankings, we also had the number one offense in the country. So that's the one example we have with him and Pittman together. And now they're coming back, bringing the gang back together with a lot of pretty good weapons. Uh, I think they're going to be really good. And I don't think I'm going to miss Kendall and his terribly timed calls very much at all. So is this conversation telling us that you've moved on from Razorback basketball? You're just done with that season? Oh, no. That's why I warned you about the timing of this, because I have Razorback basketball to talk about as well. We're starting, okay, we're starting figured, with offense coordinator. I figured. Um, well, it's I, – I hate to use the word fascinating, but I'm going to use it anyway. It's fascinating to me what happened over the last few days. And the way it looked as you watched it unfold was that Pittman got on the phone and in five minutes had hired Enos. And you know it wasn't that way. You know he had been working on that. And then this uh, narrative comes out that Hunter, Juracek, and Pittman just got tired of brawls and just wanting to dance with whoever was around and just said, well, we're going to go get somebody. And 
so I, I think it'd be interesting to see what really happened behind the scenes on all that, because that was lightning speed, uh, how fast they did all of that. And well, you remember, everybody thought we were going to hire this Maryland defensive coordinator because the plane went up there. I think that's obvious we went up there and talked to Enos. I mean, that that seems very clear at this point. So, yeah, they were ready for him. If, if Kendall was moving on, they were ready. Well, I – yes, I think you're right. And, and I mean, I'm excited about it because uh, Enos, I thought he was very creative. I think he's going to have a – we're going to have a better passing attack than we've had. And throw that in with KJ's running ability. I think that's going to free him up a little bit to where he doesn't have to brawl for three yards right up the middle so often. Um, so I'm excited. I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be very creative. I think it's going to be much more balanced run and pass. And I think he's the kind of guy. He's a quarterback guy. That's what he really likes to do is get a, get his quarterback and really work with him. I think that he's going to. I think KJ's going to get even better this year. I'll be shocked if he doesn't. Well, and one of the things that I was looking back on too, trying to see like how can how can you differentiate offensive coordinators with the fact that a lot of stats are going to be heavily skewed towards teams that have a bunch of great recruits and are power conference, you know, Ohio State and Alabama. They're going to be at the top of those rankings because they have such good players and such good talent. How do you really look and – engage an offensive coordinator. And then the other thing that skews it is that a lot of the top offenses have offensive coaches like a Lane Kiffin or something calling plays. And so you really can't give their coordinator as much credit. So where, how do you rank these guys? And one thing that I've kind of picked up on, and again, maybe I learned this through suffering through the Chad Morris years, but you can tell how an offense is doing when you look back at their numbers by their, like their touchdown interception, and turnover ratio, that's a great indicator. Are you keeping the same quarterback throughout the year, and is he putting up decent numbers? That's a great indicator. And do you have um, points getting scored? Are you actually converting points? Because yardage is great, but if you're not finishing the drive off, it doesn't matter. And Enos was pretty consistent in those as his years of offense coordinator at Arkansas and at Maryland. His his players were pretty consistent. That you know, the, the Tua's brother was his quarterback at Maryland, and I'm I'm forgetting his first name, but he's been really solid there. And 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 Brandon Allen and Austin Allen were both great at Arkansas under him. And um, Brandon Allen, you know, became a pro. So I think he's really proven himself in that regard. And it's hard to do that in another way as an offensive coordinator here coaching schools like he's coaching. When he was at Alabama, he was the quarterback's coach for Tua, and the guy was incredible. So I, I'm optimistic about it. And, and you can't discount that Pittman and Enos worked together previously. So Pittman's not going to bring him in if it's not a guy that he, number one, has a lot of confidence in, and number two, that he doesn't think he can work with. So uh, I don't know. I think – I think our offense is going to be better next year. And we announced it before TCU announced Bryles, which was just the cherry on top of it all. Now, Caitlin has has uh, sniffed out that I'm not talking about Razorback basketball, but I definitely have it here. And I follow the basketball team a lot more closely than I do the football team. So I, I feel like I'm a little more educated on it, but – this team, I, first of all, I think they're about to turn a corner. They've got three of their next four games are 
beyond winnable. They should win them, starting with this Ole Miss game on Saturday. Nick Smith Jr. showed up to practice this week. Great sign. And really, this Missouri game is is causing me – I've really had to question a lot of where they stand because on the one hand, they're very sloppy with the ball, turned it over. But on the other hand, they played really well and should have won that game. I mean, the officiating for the last two Razorback games has been off the charts bad. I, I just I can't remember seeing anything like that in back-to-back games. SEC officiating has always been pretty bad in basketball. I For years, I told people who didn't watch the SEC, like it was mainly when I was at law school, SEC had kind of a lull in basketball, and I had some friends who were like Big Ten ACC guys, and I said, listen, SEC teams are really good. Nobody can get going because the officiating is so terrible. Watch the league, see what happens. You can't hardly win on the road because the officials won't let you. So they got a little better, I thought, for a while. But this this last couple games have just been crazy. They've just been calling foul after foul after foul, and you can't do that. When when you overcall it and you're calling a bunch of fouls, you get caught in the makeup game, so then you use a bad call to make up for a bad call, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And you end up with games like we've had the last two. Arkansas has been called for 63 fouls in two games. That's insane. So I really think we beat Missouri. I thought we outplayed them. And they're a very good team. And we were on the road in a tough environment. So I think they've got a lot of it figured out already. If they can get Nick back healthy within a week or two after they run through a decent part of their schedule, I think we're going to be looking at it in six weeks saying, okay, this team's ready to go. I'm not overreacting to their slump right now. Uh, I'll go on record with it. Um, I problem with the little letter that the SEC put out about, oh, like, mm, we know that this was so bad, but sorry. I'm like, just <clears throat> don't say anything or, like, give us the win. Well, they can't give them the win, and they had to say something because I assume Hunter Yurchek was lighting them up I think he likes to do that, put them on blast. And that's one of the reasons I'm so comfortable sitting here saying that we really kind of got the game taken from us is because even the SEC officiating has acknowledged that. That call that they said uh, they got wrong, admitted it was wrong, and in the most horrendous way because the replay official in the in the uh, headquarters gave the guy on the floor the wrong information – He's got the book, <laughs> you know, he's got uh, access to all the rules. Thing. There's no excuse for that to happen other than and isn't that uh, his just whole total job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. If you're the replay guy back in Birmingham, you're just waiting until your phone rings. So, yeah, that's all you're doing right then. And I wondered about that. And Chuck Barrett on the morning show this morning had a great point, too. He said, if that's not a reviewable call, what in the world were you guys looking at for five minutes? I mean, that should have been the very first thing when the guys got on the headset was, whoa, you guys get back out on the floor. That's not a reviewable call. Okay, we're done. He said, what were you looking at that for five minutes? If it yeah. wasn't reviewable. It, it reminds me of, point. I'm going to throw an obscure reference out there. A lot of a lot of people will get it, but many will not. There's a show called I Think You Should Leave on Netflix. Highly recommend it. Very funny. But they have these skits, and one of, and one of them – the guy is driving around the parking lot. He does. He clearly doesn't know what he's doing, and the guy behind him is getting so frustrated. He's honking his horn at him, and finally he starts yelling at him. 
And the guy, the guy in the car that doesn't seem to know what he's doing looks back at him and just sort of shrugs. And then the other guy says, don't you know how to drive? And that guy says, no, I don't. Not everybody knows how to drive. And to me, it feels like that was a conversation with the replay official. Like they were saying, well, don't you know the rules? No, I don't. Not everybody knows the rules. And so they just decided, well, we'll keep the call on the court. The call was wrong. And that wasn't even the most egregious call. That's just the one that was most technically wrong that they had to admit it. I mean, there had been a charge prior where the guy was literally stepping into um, our player. I can't remember now who it was. I think it might have been Ricky uh, who was driving. And he was literally like moving forward. It was one of the worst charge calls I've ever seen. And uh, they were hugely impactful on the game. I think Missouri shot like 10 to 12 free throws while we shot one or two down the stretch. And the call that they got wrong and admitted, it was tied 71 with 40 seconds left. We should have been going to the line shooting free throws. Devo probably would have made them based on the way he was shooting free throws that night. And so we go up 73-71. That's a huge difference in that game. Bet Online remains your number one source for all your sports betting this season. Everything from the NFL and bowl season to esports. You'll find the latest odds, team matchup info, player news, and game trends at Bet Online. Bet Online features live betting, free contests, and live scores for almost any sport or game imaginable. We're the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your favorite leagues and events. Head to betonline.ag to join and receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Make sure to use the promo code BELIEVE to receive your rewards. That's B-L-E-A-V. BetOnline, where the game starts. We were robbed, as usual. Well, I mean, I mean, it's hard. It's just hard to say you weren't when you have a situation like that. Totally inexcusable. And uh, anyway, I don't think it's going to matter. I don't think that's going to cost us a tournament trip or anything at the end of the year. We're obviously, I think, out of the running for an SEC title at this point with the amount of losses we have. So for me, it's a matter of, okay, where does our team actually stand right now? And I thought it was a pretty positive step in the right direction. I don't want them to panic because they they lost that game because they have to kind of – I think they need to view it as more of a win and getting some things right. I want to I want to ask you this, Brad, because you you really really follow Razorback basketball. There's a narrative starting that a lot of the referees are getting tired of Muss's crap on the sideline. What do you think about that? Well, I thought Muss was pretty composed that game, to be honest. As bad as it was, uh, I do think our players talk a little bit, and that affects it. But <clears throat> I'm glad you brought this up because something else I've thought about this team that. Well, let me let me say this before you finish. I had a buddy that went to the Vanderbilt game at Vanderbilt, and he lives in that area. And he said, "Must was a little bit embarrassing his his antics on the on the sideline." I I don't doubt that. Must is a sore loser. We know that about him. It's one of the reasons he's so good. But this team plays really aggressive defense, and if you've ever been around basketball at high school level, um, or really the college level too. But basically what I mean is like not NBA, you know, when you've got kids playing it. You can usually tell the better players and better team because a lot of times they come out there and they play with this mentality of, I'm going to foul you and the refs aren't going to call every foul. And so I'm going to get a lot of steals and I'm going to get transition buckets and you're just going to be miserable the whole game. Well, 
the last few games, the refs have said, okay, we accept your challenge. We're going to call every foul. And it's been really, really choppy games where the refs are calling everything. We can't get any transition buckets because we can't get the steals. Our guys get in foul trouble, so they can't reach and grab as much. And that really affects our team and the way they play, I think, more so than it may affect the other teams a lot of times. Because these guys, especially the younger ones, are used to playing at a high school level where they can physically dominate like that and not get called for every foul. Because the refs usually don't want to do that. They don't want to call 50 fouls in a game. And so I'm not sitting here saying that we don't foul as much as the calls are. They just call them at terrible times usually. You could probably call Arkansas for 30 fouls a game and call actual fouls because they do reach and, and grab a lot. But the fouls they're calling aren't fouls, and they just have to be consistent with it. And, and really, they need to just let them play. The best officiated game this year by far was probably our best game, and I don't think that's a coincidence. It was that Oklahoma game. They were very consistent, letting both teams get handsy and, and, and reach a little bit. And then if you really hack somebody, you would get a foul called on you. If, if we got officiating like that every night, which we better get on Saturday, we're owed big time. <laughs> uh, I think the Hogs are going to be fine. And I do think that'll translate well to the tournament because in the tournament, they're going to let them play. I think you should go... Uh do whatever you need to do to become an SEC officiator, Brett. You sound like you would be a really – you would be absolutely so good at not. A- absol- Absolutely not. Hey, listen. That sounds listen, like a the refs have a, the refs have a hard job. I, I, I get that. And I actually when – I, when I was in undergrad, I went to a refing clinic, and I, I was going to go ref some high school basketball. And I went to that clinic, and – I quickly thought, I don't, I'm don't. i not going to learn all these rules. I'm not going to go out there and get yelled at by these parents. I just, I didn't want to do it. So I don't, I don't like to blame the refs. I like to make fun of them. I have this referee shirt, and I've been begging my wife for years to let me wear it to games and her wear a shirt that says, I'm with stupid. And I, I told her we'd... For- of course you <laughs> I told her for sure we'd get on the Jumbotron, but she doesn't want to do that. So... You know, I like to to give the refs a hard time. I think that's part of the fun of going to a game and the refs just have to accept that. But there's a certain level to it where heckling where you you've got to do your job and the replay stuff is just totally totally out of line. That should never be that bad. And it's crazy that the Hogs have had I can right now think of three blown replays just blatantly against them within the last I guess two years. Uh, the Auburn one, I can't remember how long ago it was, but the Auburn fumble, then the fumble in the in the bowl game where he clearly put his he he had clearly put his uh, the ball on the ground, and then we had this last one. So it's crazy that it happens as much as that does. That shouldn't happen. I've ran it enough. Blood pressure's up. Truth. Okay. All right. Well, I promised some law here. We've gone way past our allotted time for non-legal stuff, but I knew that's going to happen today. So I have kind of a short legal topic. I did a TikTok video on this. If you're not following on TikTok, at The Real Lawyer, R-E-E-L, you're going to find all sorts of amazing stuff if you go check that out. But I did a TikTok on this litigation being a marathon and getting your headset, your, your mind right 
for that, knowing it's going to be a marathon. And then I thought we should talk about that a little bit on here. And then I thought, well, we should really talk about what litigation is before we get into that, because it's a term that as lawyers, we use a lot, so much so that we kind of forget that it's a bit jargony. And a lot of people may not know what we mean when we say litigation. So I actually have the definition pulled up here, and it's kind of shockingly basic. The definition is the process of taking legal action, which I don't know if that helps much or not. Litigation, in my mind, refers to any time that you are involved in a lawsuit and you are you are basically actively involved in a lawsuit against another party. So, you know, drafting wills and contracts, that's not litigation. Suing someone for breach of contract, that is litigation. And to me, that's the main difference. And that's what you need to understand when we're talking about litigation. We're talking about the, the active the activity of going through a lawsuit. I agree with that. Yeah, uh, definitely not everything's litigation. Pretty much, I think if I have to talk to someone, to a third party about it, that's litigating. If it's not just me and the client, that's not litigation. Or it is litigation. Yeah, to me, it's it's court. When I think of litigation, I think of court. Something's been filed in court. Uh, whether it's a divorce or a breach contract case or personal injury case or a criminal case, that's litigation. And I think a lot of people, uh, one of the phrases that we used to hear a lot, I guess we still hear it, is trial attorney. And that means an attorney that goes to court. Well, that's a litigator. Uh, that's what if attorneys are talking with each other and they say, oh, he's a litigator. That's usually, especially in bigger cities and bigger firms, that's a person that that's an attorney that goes to court all the time or they're drafting pleadings for court, preparing for court, that kind of thing. So if you've heard the word, the phrase trial attorney, that's you hear that a lot in the general public. That is um, what what we're talking about. when We talk about a, a litigator. But uh, I always think of litigation as court involvement. Well, and the trial attorney versus litigator is there is a little distinction there that sometimes comes up because a trial attorney is, is somebody who's going to court and involved in the actual hearings, whereas some litigators don't want to go to court. They just do motions practice and drafting documents, especially at bigger firms. Sometimes there's a distinction there, but definitely trial practice is part of litigation. It, it is, and, and uh, there are a lot. the vast majority of attorneys in the United States don't go to court. They're either in corporate jobs or in firms where they're doing transactional work or whatever. And I always thought it was interesting the way they do it in uh, uh, the UK. You know, they have barristers and solicitors, and it's it's a very defined difference. And I can't remember which is which, but one goes to argue, and the other one's the one that prepares the case. And um, there's an old story about this one, let's say, solicitor, and he's preparing the case for the barrister that's going to go to court, and um, he can't find anything to help. So the barrister gets the, do you have the file? Yes, he's headed to court. And he goes and opens it up, and all it is is a little note in the briefcase, and it says, I couldn't find anything that helped our case. Go after your opponent and call him whatever name you can think of. You know, So it's like, that's our last-ditch effort. Well, the other part of this that I want to talk about is knowing now what litigation is and what we mean by that. 
is how to prepare yourself mentally as a client, especially for litigation before you just dive in. Because so many people that I talk to are ready to file a lawsuit. They're ready to get the other person and go after them. But I don't think they're truly ready for what that's about to entail. And the reality is that if, if you're in litigation and it's contested, you're probably not going to reach a resolution for months and sometimes years. And if this is something, especially if this is something that involves your day-to-day life, like a business issue or a, a custody action or something, it's going to really weigh on you a lot. And it's going to put pretty consistent pressure on you and how you live your life. So before you go file that lawsuit, it's important that you understand this isn't going to be a a one-month thing and you're going to have your resolution in a month. You've got to be ready to get into it for the long haul. And And you have to stay ready because you can definitely get fatigued by it. Sometimes attorneys can get fatigued by it. But you can't let that fatigue become so overwhelming that you start to make bad decisions or or decisions that aren't in the best interest of you in your case. Yeah, my clients um, seem to sometimes not understand how long litigation takes. And that's a really important thing to be able to steel yourself against the passage of time. Because a week to me as an attorney is not the same as a week to me as an individual. Um, I like expect for people to take a week or two to get back to me on things. And it's really hard to explain, like, that's just how it kind of goes and it's not going to be instantaneous. Um, yeah, it's just long and drawn out. You, you have to do, um, your due diligence on the front end as a potential client and research the attorneys that you want to hire Find one that's experienced in the area that you need because, and and the reason I'm going to that topic is because that goes directly to what we're talking about here. And then you can ask two, you may have a lot of questions for the attorney, but there's two major ones you, you're going to ask. And one of them is how much is this going to cost? Not just the retainer. Ask them, how much do you estimate this is going to cost throughout? And, an attorney, and that's why you've got to pick that attorney that's experienced in that kind of area of the law because they're going to be able to give you an idea. They can't give you a 100% guarantee within a penny, but they can give you a pretty good idea of how much it's going to cost and why. And if you've got questions about why it costs that much, then ask. I mean, that we're here to try to help you understand this process, not make it murky or, or make it more difficult for you. And, and that's the other question is how long is it going to take? Um, because it depends on the case, the complexity, who's the attorney on the other side, which court are we in? Uh, there are, there are several factors that will determine that. And an attorney that does this kind of work on a consistent basis is going to be able to give you some pretty good answers to that. I I agree with you 100% on those two questions. And that's probably a, maybe a podcast or video for another time to get into those a little bit more, but asking your attorney on the front end about time and cost is, I think, so smart. And I try to tell my clients or potential clients that whether they ask it or not, because I want them to know before we begin so they don't start getting on me about it when when things don't happen immediately. And there's a difference between the reality of how long litigation is going to take versus just not pursuing the case at all. But you do have to understand that, that your attorney is probably working multiple cases 
And we have ethical obligations to prioritize the cases that are needing the immediate attention. And so if we have a case that's set for trial one week, we have to prioritize that case if your case isn't set for trial yet at all or is set for trial five weeks away. We're really obligated to do that. So you have to keep that in mind. But at the same time, you can't just get discouraged because the case isn't moving at warp speed. And you have to, you have to keep your mind right on it. Otherwise, you know, too often I see people say, well, what are, what's the point anymore? And it's like, well, the point is the same as it was before. You just have to consider how much it matters to you and has your priorities changed in your life? Does this lawsuit mean as much now as it did before? And if it doesn't, then, then your position can soften and that's reasonable and fair. But you can't just say, well, there's no point to it because this has taken six months and I thought it was going to take three months. That's not making good decisions to me. The wheels of justice move slowly, and sometimes it moves as slow as molasses in January. And sometimes the slowness of it is to your benefit, which is also something to keep in mind. That's true. Every case has its own pace, and um, you, you do have to understand, going back to where you started, this is a marathon, not a sprint, and you have to get that mindset as a client. You have to, and you have to trust that your attorney is moving your case along as best as he or she can. And that's why you do that due diligence at the beginning to try to choose someone that's in your area of the law, because they're going to know the law. They're going to know how the courts in that particular area of the state or wherever you are, how fast they move, how slow they move. They can keep your expectations in line with what's, with what's going on. And, but it is a marathon and uh, it takes time to get finished and, and try not to pressure your attorney. Um, because we're working on it as best we can and we're pushing it along as best we can. And, uh, you know, you, when you hire an attorney, there's a lot of different jobs. When you hire me, there's a lot of different jobs in my mind that I'm doing for you. And this is one of them to make sure we're pushing your case along properly, but it's also making sure I try to get you what you're wanting and that we're keeping your expectations in line with that goal and that we can still get that goal. And one of the best things I was ever told is that a case is a living and breathing thing. It's not a black and white thing that starts and stays static and the same all the way throughout. It changes as you go through the case. And many times it gets better for you and many times it gets worse as you do discovery. So those decisions and how long it's going to take is kind of a fluid thing all the way through. And I know that's it's hard to be patient with that, but that's just the nature of, of what it is. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. I think I think we will end it there because that was such a good point, Kevin. I'm glad it, I could help, Brad. Ended on a high note, but no, I, I truly that's that's such a good point. The idea about the case being a, a living, breathing thing and fluid. You just have to keep that in mind. It changes constantly. So, with that, we will sign off with another episode here of Coffee with Council. Thank you guys for listening. You have a good day. Thanks, guys. This podcast has been presented by Bet Online. This podcast is an exclusive property of Pearson Broadcasting. It may not be copied, reproduced, modified, published, uploaded, reposted, transmitted, or distributed in any way without Pearson Broadcasting's prior written consent. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.
You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.